Welcome to the Spurs Up Show, home of the best Gamecocks content on the internet. The following is brought to you by our friends over at Prize Picks. Go download the Prize Picks app or go to prizepicks.com. And when you do, use the promo code TSUS to receive a 100% instant deposit match up to $100. Prize Picks is the simplest fantasy game on the market focused around prop total entries. You pick two to six players and you can win up to 10 times on any entry. Price Picks has no sharks, automizers, or mass multi-entry. It's literally just you against the projection. They also allow mixed sport entry. So, for example, you can take the over on LeBron, parlay with the under on Mahomes. They've got college sports, pro sports, literally anything and everything you can think of. They have got it over at Price Picks. They also have a slick, easy-to-use mobile app both on the App Store and Google Play, and they're rated 4.8 stars in the App Store with rave reviews. So many fans and listeners of the Spurs Up show have made tons of money with our friends at Prize Picks, and you should as well. So again, go download the Prize Picks app or go to prizepicks.com, and when you do, use the promo code TSUS to receive a 100% instant deposit match up to $100. Be sure to check them out and tell them that Chris from the Spurs Up Show sent you. Let's get it. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Our 2023 opponent preview series continues. We go to Gainesville to talk the Florida Gators heading in a year two of Billy Napier and who better to help us break down all things Florida football 
the Neil Shulman of InAllKindsOfWeather.com. He joins the show once again. Neil, appreciate you taking the time, my friend. How's everything going? Going pretty well on my end. Appreciate that intro. Um, who better to talk Florida Gators than, than me? That, that's pretty high praise. Appreciate that. Um, I mean, things going well. And uh, as a Gator, one of the few in the state of South Carolina myself, it's a little nice that one of the few teams we did beat last year was was that team uh, in, in this state. So that's kind of cool. But looking forward to the season and looking forward to talking about it with you tonight, too. And we'll definitely, Neil, get into all that later in the show. But first things first, let's look back at the 2022 season. It was year one of the Billy Napier era, six and seven overall, three and five in the SEC. You lost the Las Vegas Bowl to Oregon State and a year that a lot of ups and downs, right, which you would expect of year one. Lost five of your last seven, three straight to end the season. But you think about the fact you beat South Carolina the way you did. The very next week, you lose to the Vanderbilt Commodores, and, and that started the losing streak. Just talk about, Neil, year one of the Billy Napier era. I'm sure you set out pretty realistic expectations because anytime you have a coaching change, there was a reason for a coaching change, right? It doesn't happen normally for good reasons in the SEC. So talk about year one of the Billy Napier era. Do you feel like that it met expectations and uh, your overall takeaways from it? Well, I think you were talking about meeting expectations. I would say through 10 games it did at, at six and four and you're telling me, well, now you just have to go one and one in the last two to meet the Vegas odds of seven and five in year one. You know, given that we threw a lot of guys off the team, Brenton Cox, Dewan Black, Kamar Wilcox, a lot of dismissals, a lot of a lot of in-year turnover within the team. You still keep things rolling to that extent that you're able to be basically on track for what you think. I would say that year one was going to be a year that we could say met the expectation until Vandy. No one expected that. Um, and then finishing it off with the last two losses. I mean, FSU is a respectable team, at least. Uh, I don't really know that, that people put too much stock into that Vegas Bowl. That was kind of a skeleton of a, of a Florida team. The Vanderbilt and the FSU losses were much more frustrating for Florida fans. But, I mean, you, you kind of hit the nail on the head there. We're talking about the way to synopsize it. Florida was, I think, more talented, at least from a paper standpoint, than fans like to think. That Florida team was certainly capable of – of beating and if not hanging around with any team in the country and even Georgia, the national champ, there we were in a one score game with two minutes left in the third quarter, couldn't string it together consistently enough. There, there were too many plays where too many guys didn't do their assignments. There were too many games where most of the Florida guys did their assignments, but there was a stretch or two where a couple of guys would let up a little bit. I mean, it could be anything from just loosening the grip on the ball, ball security, missing assignments from the offensive line, missing assignments and defense, just too many guys doing too many of the fundamental things wrong. You add that all up and it's a team that, I mean, you use the South Carolina and then Vandy example in back-to-back weeks. To me, that's not even the biggest example of the inconsistency. To me, look at the first month. I mean, you beat Utah, top 10 team. They win the Pac-12. I know that's not the SEC, but – that's a respectable team that probably probably goes eight and four, nine and three in the SEC. So respectable opponent. And then the very next week you lose to Kentucky when Will Levis doesn't play well. And Richardson throws them two touchdowns. There's a pick six. There's another interception that's returned to about the five-yard line. The defense actually plays well that game. The next week, South Florida, who finishes one and 11, comes into the swamp. And we need them to mess up a routine hold on a field goal attempt to survive them. The week after that, 
there we are in Rocky Top. I know we're used to beating Tennessee, but this was a Tennessee team that finished 11 and 12 and was probably going to the playoff before you guys got done with them that we were 39 yards away from beating when there was no real reason to expect that heading into the game. And then watching Tennessee go up to a three-score lead halfway through the fourth quarter. So just the the ups and downs, it, it results in a team that's exactly average. You got a six and six team. I mean, the, the Vegas Bowl counted, but again, that was not really the the same team we saw throughout the course of the year. But six and six, six and seven, whatever. It's a team that wins as many games as it loses, give or take. And that's, I mean, as we know, even you as a South Carolina fan have to know that's not going to get it done for any school in the SEC aside from maybe Vanderbilt. So that's something that I think Florida is going to have to work on um, beyond just the wins and losses is the consistency. And I think Napier is doing that, as I'm sure we'll talk about um, coming up shortly. Neil, Billy Napier might be the most fascinating head coach heading into the 2023 season because you think about the pressure that he's facing and you mentioned year one. Again, the expectations weren't sky high, but for Florida football to come into a season and have an over-under win total of five and a half. SEC football fans, as you and I both know, are like bad doctors. They don't have patience, right? The way that Florida is recruiting would indicate that the Gators are a football program on the rise. The big question we've all heard all offseason, will Florida fans give him the time he needs to – enjoy the fruits of the labor that he's putting in right now. I know you've talked about this as well. Just just talk about, though, the Florida fan base. What's the mood and the vibe around Billy Napier going into this football season? Well, I, I think the the vibe among – I mean, you're, if you're going to use the 10-80-10 the, the rule to use, I guess, in marketing or, or most businesses where you assume that, that there's 10 fringe outliers that are overly positive, 10 fringe outliers are overly negative, 80% in the middle, that's where you go with your – that that's where you target. I think that 80%, as loud as that, that pessimistic 10% may sound, the middle 80%, I think, is, 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 is prepared for patience. Because I think that I think that, that they know that he was hired to be the antithesis of Dan Mullen. Dan Mullen came in to do a quick fix without really seeing a vision for the future. I don't know that people thought that at the time, but it was pretty evident about that when we started unfurling the, the layers of the damage that were done um, towards the end of his tenure at Florida. But we knew that this was going to take time. He said as much in the opening press conference. And I understand that there are going to be some fans who are going to use that as well. He's just, you know, trying to to buy himself a couple of bad years before he gets fired. I really think that the key to look at is that last year, with maybe four or five exceptions, maybe six, overwhelming majority of the most consistent and the best players on the field were handpicked Billy Napier guys, Ricky Pearsall transfer, Trevor Etienne, true freshman, Montreal Johnson transfer, Devin Moore, true freshman, Kamari Wilson, true freshman, Osiris Torrance transfer, Chris McClellan, true freshman, Shamar James, true freshman, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There are a lot of those guys that Napier himself went out and got for himself that produced at a high level consistently throughout the course of the year. And that was after one off season of massive turnover. Now he's done that a second time. He has done a second roster overhaul. So there's going to be a lot higher of a percentage of guys on his team in 2023 that he himself handpicked. So look, every coach is going to miss at some point, but there were a lot of misses 
that Dan Mullen was responsible for that were either maybe not the highest rated guy or they were highly rated, but there were other red flags that he ignored. Napier doesn't do that. So I feel very confident in the quality of the take that he has been responsible for so far. I don't see a reason to think that that changes moving forward. So that's why I think a lot of people are prepared for patience and not just in the, in the apathy mode that I think, you know, sometimes you get into when like Tennessee, for example, when there's bad forever and they're just, they're used to it. So they don't expect any better. I think Florida fans have real reason to see the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow here. Just how much pressure would you say is on him in year two? Because I know some have talked about the idea of, you know, what would it take to get Napier fired in year two, which I don't think that's possible by the way, Neil, but when you factor in the fact he's got a $31 million buyout, like there's no way Florida is paying that. But you look at next year in 2024, what that schedule provides 11 power five opponents. Again, Florida fans will have patience like you mentioned, but that 10% that you talked about and every fan base has it, it's loud. And it talks, and some of those 10% might have influence just enough to get him run out of there if things don't get rolling quickly. I mean, what would you say, you know, I know you just spoke on it, but what would you say is like the pressure meter if you had to kind of set it or give an idea? What do you think that level is at right now? Uh, two out of 10, two and a half out of 10. I mean, look, the obvious counter to that is don't lose to Charlotte. Don't lose to McNeese because, well, I mean, you laugh, but Florida was there. They were needing USF to mess up a field goal hold to get out of there with a win. And USF won one game all last year. So it's not like that's totally out of the realm of possibility, but I mean, preferably don't lose to Vandy again, but I mean, Florida could take a step back next year. I think at, at even five and seven, it would not go over well with the fan base, but I don't think that would, any worse than five and seven, I think he's in real trouble in 24. I don't think that's likely. So I happen to think that that five and a half win total is a little ridiculous. I don't think Florida is going to be a CFP team or I don't think they'll even go nine and three, but five and a half pretty offensively low to me, but you know, don't, don't have any massive collapse at the end of the year. Don't lose those, those sort of buy games, preferably don't lose to Vandy get to a bowl game and he's fine. Now, 24, as you mentioned, there, there has to be significant improvement because then the guys I talked about this year, those true freshmen, well, they'll be juniors. So you're going to expect them to step up. The guys who's in this class right now is currently number three in the country. They're going to be sophomores. They will have been in the program for a year. There's going to be a much higher level of expectation in 24. But as far as what could happen this year to get him fired, I I just think it's it's extremely unlikely. But if you want me to put a number on it, maybe three and nine, something like that, like catastrophe. Right. Well, hey, let's move on the field and what this Gators football team is going to look like in 2023. We'll start on the offensive side, of course. Uh, the headliner, I think, was Florida picking up Graham Mertz, the Wisconsin transfer at quarterback mm -hmm. out of the portal. Uh, Montrell Johnson, Trevor Etienne, they returned to lead that rushing attack. I think one of the best one-two combos at the running back position in college football. You mentioned Ricky Pearsall. I think he's a guy most believe has that potential to be a breakout star of the SEC at the wide receiver position. You look up front of the offensive line, just one starter is back up front, but you do add transfers from Kentucky, Baylor, and Alabama to boost that offensive front. So, Neil, what are you expecting out of the Gators' offense in 2023, and what can they do with Graham Mertz at the quarterback position? 
Well, it should be worth noting that the the guy from Kentucky you just mentioned, Keontae Goodwin, is actually not with the program. He is transferring again to be with his sick mother. So, okay. you know, obviously wish him all the best. But that is a hit to Florida's offensive line. I mean, it's that's obviously secondary. But if we're talking football, that that does hurt a bit. Um, but that's why Napier went out and got a lot of that. He, he had a lot of offensive line transfers come in and he signed a decent class too. I think now, you know, you might see a guy like a Roderick Kearney as a true freshman start, whereas maybe that, maybe that was, maybe that wasn't in the plans last year. He's, he's probably going to see some playing time as a freshman this year. Also Cam Waits tearing an Achilles earlier this offseason that hurt. So the, the depth has taken a hit, but that's why Napier puts such a premium on overhauling that this offseason. So I think if anything, Florida's offensive line, I mean, it's, it's going to be very difficult to replace an All-American like Osiris Torrance, but I think at, at worst, it'll take a slight step back, and at best, it could be even better because there's they're bigger now. I mean, Ethan White and Michael Tarquin were very, very good for Florida, but, I mean, Florida just replaced them with guys who are 50 pounds heavier with pure muscle. So that, it, it's kind of, you know, unless I – guess they just don't learn the system very quickly and they miss assignments it's going to be kind of hard for them not to at least somewhat tread water there as for Mertz I mean the running game is probably going to be something that Florida should lean on much more heavily this year Um, I thought it should have been what they leaned on more heavily last year than they did at times I think Napier might have actually cost Florida the FSU game at least in part because he threw the ball so much with Richardson but I mean guys like you just mentioned with ETN and Montreal Johnson those guys are your bell cows. They're the bell cows of the entire offense. Ricky Pearsall is definitely a playmaker, but it should be a run first team for Florida that I think as long as those two stay healthy in the offensive line and blocking for them stays healthy, that alone could be worth six or seven wins. Neil, it's list season, obviously, at this point in the offseason. Let me ask you this, because I've put out a quarterback rankings list. Many others have as well. How, how does it make Gators fans and you specifically feel to see Graham Mertz ranked 14th in the SEC among starting quarterbacks. That's that's ridiculous. I, I don't think he's top five. He may not be top 10, but I mean, so, some of the guys that are ahead of him on that list are just, that's, that's insulting. Um, I mean, look, he, he's not a terrible quarter or he wasn't terrible at Wisconsin. I don't expect him to come in and be an interception machine. I just think that, you know, the, the question with him is that, his ceiling and his floor may not be too far apart and they're not exactly in the Heisman category. So he might just be a game manager. He might be a perfectly average quarterback and you can win 10, 11 games. If you have the right defense, which we'll talk about in a minute. Um, and you have an offensive line that can block for your running game. That's a question. Uh, the defense I'm saying, but I mean, you just don't have to, you know, just don't lose games. And I think if Graham Mertz can do that, then, I mean, he's probably worth being in the top 10 just for that because there are quarterbacks in the SEC that I'm sure are going to throw a bunch of interceptions this year because they panic and their stats will be worse and their fans will not think of them as highly as they think of other freebies in the country. Speaking of that defense, Neil, let's move to that side of the ball. And you look at last year, Florida allowed opponents to convert 49% of their third downs. They allowed 30 or more points in six of their losses. Billy Napier went out and hired a 29-year-old Austin Armstrong as his defensive coordinator. And he was a guy that really, I feel like, took social media by storm because of the spring game and what have you. Very, very fiery guy on the sideline. You got seven newcomers. 
We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Up front, you mentioned Billy Napier absolutely hammered the transfer portal. That's led by Memphis transfer Cam Jackson. Was a really, really big pickup up front for Florida. Princely, how do you say his last name? You want to pronounce this? Uman Uman Mielin. Uman Mielin. Yeah. Uman Mielin. Princely Uman Mielin leads the defense at the jack position. Nine and a half tackle for loss. A season ago, Jason Marshall Jr., Jaden Hill, Kamari Wilson all return in the secondary for you guys as well. So you mentioned the defense is a question mark. You got a 29-year-old defensive coordinator. What's the Gators defense look like this fall? So I think schematically it's not going to change that much. I think that's part of why Florida brought him in. I think Napier was actually very happy with with the scheme that Patrick Tony brought to Florida. Um, I think in some cases you had guys who were still I don't want to say scarred, but they from Todd Grantham, but they it was a big adjustment to to switch from that that basically what I call the turnover points defense because that's pretty much the result every time with him uh, to a defense that relies a lot more on assignment based football and using intelligence, which is a lot for them to pick up, and it didn't go very well. So I think Napier was very happy he did that because now he's not going to have to switch the scheme again. Austin Armstrong. I mean, he'll, he'll bring blitzes. Um, he will every now and then bring a corner blitz, you know, just to keep the opposing offense a little bit, a little bit guessing game. But I think the, the growth of the players from year to year is going to be what determines this team's success on defense. Because, I mean, we, we saw a guy last year in, in trading who is a fifth year senior, talented for sure, fast. He could tackle well. He could, that's the key word, could, didn't always, but could. Um, he could cover 30 yards to bring down someone that you never thought he had a chance to get. But there were a lot of missed assignments. There were a lot of missed tackles in there. And now you have a lot of guys, that I think, as I said at the start of the show, that produce consistently that are going to be a larger percentage of the defense right now to Florida. So I think the expectations are that it's going to be a better defense because it has to be. I think the reasonable expectation is that it should be 
top 40-ish, top 50 maybe in the country. Because if you just cut the busted assignments down and other teams may just beat you because they make plays, so be it. But that's going to be what Florida is going to be okay with giving up yards for, not because of six or seven missed assignments in the game, which was what happened the last five years. Neil, moving to the special team side of things, Jeremy Crawshaw returns your punter 47.9 yard per punt average last year. There's a battle at kicker in Gainesville between Adam Mahalik and Trey Smack. And of course, Trevor Etienne and Henderson lead to return or lead the return game, if you will. So anything stand out for Florida in regards to special teams this upcoming season? Yeah, I mean, the kicker position is going to be a, a battle for sure. Um, Halleck has a leg. He's got the distance to hit from 55 or so. It's just not always accurate. So, I mean, Trace Mack also has that. He also has distance with his leg. He's just – we don't know if he's accurate because we haven't seen him do it yet. So, we'll have to see how that goes. And there's really not a way to know until you see them do it in a game, which is kind of unfortunate because you can simulate it or try to simulate it and practice all you want, but that – it's just not a substitute for the pressure that I think comes with being on the road in Williams Bryce or Death Valley or Jacksonville, Florida, Georgia, and you know, with knowing what rides on your kick and knowing how you do then. So Florida's just gonna have to wait and see there. I feel pretty confident with Jeremy Crawshaw as the punter. He's been a punter for three years now for Florida. So I mean, we we pretty much know what we have there. He's got a very good leg. It's it, it does work directionally. He can he can do the coffin corner punts where there's just no return and opponents have to start inside their own 15 or so. So Florida should feel good about that return game. I mean, that's, that's a question. I mean, Florida lost the game last year because of that Jason Marshall trying to field a punt inside his own five, which never should have been attempted, but just a, I guess a mental lapse there more than anything else. But I mean, assuming that doesn't happen, I think Florida's, punt return game will be will be fine i don't know that that there's necessarily um well may, maybe if someone like a, a eugene wilson gets involved there a true freshman maybe they can have a, a, a big play threat there but i don't know that that's something florida's putting a premium on the way that south carolina does it used to be you remember special teams used to be our thing in the in the, in the urban meyer years we actually saved the national championship season because of that against you guys in 06 but i i just i, I haven't seen evidence that there's that much of importance being placed on it so far. So, Neil, Florida returned seven starters this season, three on the offensive side, four on the defense, and the Gators are looking to avoid three straight losing seasons for the first time since the 1950s. You look at this 2023 schedule. Let's break it down, Neil. Of course, you kick off this season at Utah, and Florida really stole headlines in week one of the college football season last year when they took down the Utah Utes, and you're thinking to yourself, Oh, my goodness, Billy Napier's got it rolling in year one. Now you make that return trip to Utah August 31st, which I cannot wait to watch, by the way. Going to be a great game. But then McNeese State at home, Tennessee at home in week three. Did not realize, Neil, that the Vols have not won in the Swamp since 2003. That blew my mind. That was a crazy stat. Charlotte at home at Kentucky. Vandy, uh, you get your bye, or excuse me, then at South Carolina, of course, then the bye week. Then you got Georgia in the world's largest outdoor cocktail party. Arkansas at home from the West. Really interesting game there at LSU the following week at Missouri and then Florida State at home. How do you feel that schedule shakes out, Neil? We've seen it from different publications that the Gators have the toughest schedule in college football. Would you agree? And again, how do you think the schedule sh uh, sets up for Florida in year two of Billy Napier? I don't agree that, it, that it's the, the toughest 
Um, I mean, just because Florida's not in the SEC West, I mean, having having to draw Alabama and Georgia, I think, kind of makes Auburn earn that distinction alone. But I mean, the way the way I would break it down is I see two cupcakes sort of baked in there. I know I say that very cautiously after last year with USF, but I think we can reasonably assume that that won't happen again. Charlotte, McNeese State should be wins. I'm willing to trade in or not trade in, but I'm willing to to say that to, LSU and Georgia are probable losses. I think most Gator fans would take that in exchange for beating FSU, Tennessee, Arkansas, and Vandy. You got to protect your home turf. Those games are all in the swamp. If Florida loses those two at LSU and it always sucks losing to Georgia, but I mean, they are kind of the team that runs the sport right now. So it's reasonable to assume that Florida gets all of its, I would say aside from LSU, Florida gets most of its toughest opponents in the swamp, Tennessee, the team that, I mean, was a CFP team until the very end of the season last year, ranked number one in November, they come to the swamp FSU yeah, listen to their fans tell it they're kings of the sport right now. They're certainly acting like it. They come to the swamp. Weird game against Arkansas, but they come to the swamp. And I mean, we can't make fun of Vanderbilt right now because they beat us last year. That return game is in the swamp. The road games are where it gets tricky. We don't know the health of Cam Rising right now. So that kind of puts a big question mark into that Utah game. If he does not play or if he plays, but he's not really close to full health, very reasonable to think that Florida could win that at Kentucky. I know they've beaten us twice in a row, but Florida, certainly from a talent standpoint, you don't expect them to lose to them again. And I mean, Missouri weird game could be cold to the end of the season. That could always throw a monkey wrench into things. Then you guys, that's, I think one of the keys, I think that is the X or one of the X factors um, probably that Tennessee and FSU are the three games that, you know, which, which result happens more Does Florida win two of those three, or do they lose two of those three? I think determines if the season's ultimately successful or not. Now, Neil, you talk about that game in Columbia. Let's move to that because what I think is so interesting, you know, Neil, I, I look at South Carolina's schedule and I view the game on Rocky top against Tennessee as one that while I list it as a toss up. And I think revenge factor gets overplayed in college football, right? Like if you're not already fired up to play, what is bulletin board material? What is the revenge factor? Once that ball's kicked off, you're just back to playing football and it's whoever executes at a higher level is going to win the game. But I look at that game for South Carolina. I've said it all off season. After last year, Tennessee's got that game circled. If there's one game I expect them to play their best, they're stating to be packed. It's that one against the Gamecocks, hence why I have picked Tennessee to win that game and win that game by double digits. Do Florida fans in any way, after last year, 38-6 to at the Swamp, do they look at the South Carolina game the same way? Obviously, Gamecock fans have revenge on the mind. What are the thoughts around the game as a whole, and do you think do you think revenge factor is a thing in college football, and would you say, would you think revenge factor is a factor in this ball game this fall? I think it's a factor to the degree that we can reasonably expect South Carolina to just not completely self-destruct at every available turn. I think that they will play better reasonably 
under their under their home lights. I mean, with their home fans on their home turf, they'll be hearing about last year. They'll be drilled in fundamentals. Hey, ball security. You fumbled three possessions in a row last year. Maybe let's not do that this time. Um, you know, Rattler will probably take a little bit more time to study the Florida defense just because he didn't look very comfortable last year. So he'll be drilled into it. Hey, he didn't look good against Florida last year. So maybe, maybe in that sense, but I think once the game kicks off, um, we're, we're going to see a lot more even of a game in Florida last year, by the way, didn't play especially fantastic against you guys either three turnovers in a row inside your 30 and two of them, we didn't get any points out of also had a punt blocked, fumbled a punt and fumbled a snap or another field goal attempt. So plenty for Florida to clean up too. So I think Florida will look at that too, from a special teams standpoint and say, Hey, special teams were kind of terrible for us last year, especially toward the end of the year. Maybe we have to work on that a lot more this off season too. So I think that it's going to mean that Florida should not expect the game to be a walkover, but I don't know that I would say that it's a game that Florida can expect to lose just because we embarrassed them last year. I don't, I don't think it, I don't think the revenge factor works that way. And you look at this game, you mentioned Neil, the challenges of playing at Williams Bryce stadium, especially if that game is at night, Carolina also Neil fun fact is 15 and two off a bye week. Since 2009, the Gamecocks will have the bye week before Florida. And what I think is interesting on the Gators' schedule, this is the last game because before I mentioned, or as I mentioned, before Florida hits their bye week and takes on the Georgia Bulldogs. So when I look at the Florida schedule, if they're going to hit that over five and a half, they're going to overachieve, they're going to overachieve from the fifth in the SEC East that the media picked them at SEC Media Days. That South Carolina game is a really, really, really big swing game for the Gators and the Gamecocks, I would say. Neil, I've actually labeled this game the most important game of South Carolina's season. I think it's a huge swing game for Florida as well. When you look at that, there's the bye, then Georgia, Arkansas, at LSU, at Mizzou, Florida State. It could really set Florida up for a big finish to the 2023 season. Certainly. Um, I, I think that you, you might not be totally truthful right there. I think we all know that the most important game for you guys is Clemson every year. I live in, <laughs> I've lived in South Carolina for a year now, so I've learned that that's the case. But Well, that, uh, see, Neil, that'd be boring, man, content-wise. I can't just say the same game every year. To your point, though, just on a quick side note, if you're not – I mean, I feel like this goes for almost any team. If your team's not winning the championship, what's the next best, next best thing they can do? Beat the arch rival. I mean, that almost goes for anybody, though. And keep them from winning a championship. I get it. I get it. But I, I, I definitely saw the results that um, that you guys put a lot of emphasis on that game last year. I've seen yep. no shortage of merchandise celebrating that. Some <laughs> some of which comes from you. But um, I mean, yeah, Florida. I think part part of why I think that the five and a half win total is so crazy is I, I will say I do not think this is likely, but it's certainly possible that Florida hits it before they're by. There's no game, especially if Cam Rising does not play for Utah. It's possible that Florida comes into that game without a loss. I mean, Kentucky, they could win that game on the road, certainly not out of their own possibility. Tennessee, that's in the swamp, certainly could win that. There are two cupcakes baked in there. That's two of them. Then you got to beat Vandy. I don't think Florida loses to them twice. I mean, it's not totally unrealistic to think that Florida could be unbeaten going into the South Carolina game. And if Florida goes and they win that, now all of a sudden you're way ahead of schedule. Even if you have one loss, 
heading into South Carolina. You're way ahead of schedule now. You're looking at, hey, one game at a time. We can't look too far ahead, but we can kind of look a little down the road. And we know now that if we win this game, we go to Jacksonville with that being everything. That is this season. All the goals that the Florida Gators list every season, national championship, SEC championship, that's all on the line now. That's all in the realm of possibility, mathematically speaking, when we go to Jacksonville. So let's take care of business today. But we do that and we unlock those doors. So Florida, I think, will probably lose one of those games. I was talking about Utah, Kentucky, or Tennessee. I think they will lose one of them at least. But Florida's season could certainly be heading in a, in a direction that if they win that South Carolina, like heading into the South Carolina game, if they win that game, they will suddenly be thinking that things are a lot rosier in Gainesville than they were nine months before. So it, it's huge for sure. Florida also doesn't really win there anymore. We're, I think, two and four in the last six times we've gone there. So we'll see. <laughs> Neil Shulman of in all kinds of weather.com breaking down the Florida Gators. Neil, I appreciate you taking the time. Let everyone know where they can check out your work. Of course. So in all kinds of weather.com um, is where we put our written thoughts on the Florida Gators. Our Twitter is at all kinds weather. Our Instagram is at all kinds weather blog. We mostly just post our graphics there. Our, our score graphics and maybe some other news here and there, but mostly Twitter and Facebook is in all kinds of weather. YouTube um, just launched a second YouTube channel specifically for podcasts. I, I had been uploading mostly just old Gator football games on the, the initial YouTube. So that, that one is in all kinds of weather. The podcast one where we'll put our, our audio or video thoughts on the Gators is the in all kinds of weather forecast, which is also the name of our podcast. That was a lot, I know, but look, looking forward to having you back on our show. This is um, always fun to chop it off with you and looking forward to a fun season ahead. Bye.